Welcome to the Seamland Podcast, I'm your host Seamland and today I'm playing you the recording of my speech at the Biohacker Summit 2020 in Helsinki called Stronger by Stress. It's based on my book called Stronger by Stress and it also gives a little insight into the movie that we made called Stronger by Stress. You can check out the movie on all the major streaming platforms like iTunes, Amazon Prime, etc. And you can get the book from Amazon. This episode is brought to you by Self Decode. Self Decode is a genetics decoding company. You can get personalized health recommendations based on your DNA and the latest scientific research. They have numerous different DNA reports for different areas of focus like weight loss, longevity, gastrointestinal health, cognition and even mood. Recently Self Decode came out with our 2.0 software that incorporates artificial intelligence in generating DNA reports. Is the most advanced and comprehensive consumer DNA service in the world. You can get a 10% discount with the code SEAM at selfdecode.com. Head over to selfdecode.com and use the code SEAM for a 10% discount on your personalized DNA reports. I'm glad to be here. I only come from Estonia, but you know, during these times, it's hard to get anywhere, even outside of your own house. <laughs> but uh, like, yeah, I would imagine that you know, 2020 has been pretty stressful and uh, pretty chaotic. Uh, but you know, at the same time, we can't really forget that this sort of chaos and uh, stressful events are just part of life, and they're not inherently harmful. So in the past, people would always like experience famine, starvation, war, and uh, even pandemics. They come and go all the time. So uh, us as people, we just have to kind of take that information into account, and if we know what to do, then we can actually kind of uh, leverage these stressors. Um, as a way to get stronger and better. So that's going to be the purpose and topic of my speech. How can we get stronger by these uh, stressors? And I would imagine that you know, the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about stress is that it's harmful, it's uh, negative, it's bad, and it makes us feel awful. And it is true that you know, research shows if you are chronically stressed out, then you're more susceptible to many chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity, and even like depression and neurodegeneration. So yes, yeah, stress can be uh, quite harmful if it's uh, in excess. But if you look at the definition of stress, then um, it's not necessarily negative. By definition, stress is just like an imbalance. In the, body, uh, in the body's homeostasis. So homeostasis is balance, and stress is just an imbalance from that homeostasis. The body has deviated away from this balance. And uh, in order to maybe get healthier and get back into balance, then we just need to kind of reduce the stress or learn how to manage it uh, better. The founding father of stress science is uh, Hans Salje, He's a Hungarian-Canadian endocrinologist, and he did a lot of experiments after, the world, after world War II on uh, different um, mice and species. And he has you know, said that it is not stress that kills us, it is our reaction to it that does. So uh, even he kind of realized that there are many stressors in our life, and uh, what necessarily causes this damage and causes these negative side effects is our own response to the stressors. And Salia also came up with his module uh, called the General Adaptation Syndrome. And it es essentially describes the stress response as a physiological phenomenon. And it consists of uh, three stages. The first stage is the alarm stage. 
where the body has experienced this stress and it has encountered this resistance. And uh, in this stage, your body hasn't been accustomed to the stress yet, and therefore it experiences this drop in the immune system, drop in just functionality, and uh, decline in these restorative processes and uh, regenerative processes inside the body. The second stage that you can see in the orange is uh, resistance. And in this stage, the actual body hyper-responds to the stressor. It tries to fight it, it tries to resist it, and it does so by mobilizing all the resources it has. It releases stress hormones, it releases uh, blood sugar, and just tries to survive and resist the stress as much as possible. But eventually, you know, every, every type of energy is going to eventually be depleted, including uh, the resistance to stress. And uh, if that happens, then you can end up with two solutions. That's the third stage, the last stage. It can be either recovery or exhaustion. So recovery would happen if your body has managed to deal with the stress, it managed to overcome it, and is now returning back to homeostasis, back to baseline, where it's uh, healthy. But if the resources have been depleted or the stressor is too large, too excessive, then exhaustion is going to ensue, and uh, that can lead to all the diseases, burnout, depression, <laughs> anxiety, and eventually even death. So they also hypothesized that uh, the stress response is governed by this unique currency that he called adaptation energy, and, uh, or AE. And adaptation energy is something that our body uses to deal with stressors. And Salya himself thought that uh, adaptation energy is finite, that you only have a certain amount of this resource that you get when you're born, and every stressor you experience throughout your entire lifetime is depleting that adaptation energy. And um, basically, when the adaptation energy gets depleted completely, then you die uh, or get sick. But there are other research, researchers, um, such as Goldman, who kind of carried on Sadia's work. He hypothesized that adaptation energy can be restored and uh, recovered, so you can actually build it up to a certain extent. And you don't necessarily have to you know, die to distress if you're able to recover this adaptation energy. And uh, if, uh, if you think about how human species have managed to survive over hundreds and thousands of years in like nature, in, through the ice ages and uh, these dangerous environments, then I think that would be a mu much more like a reasonable, evolutionary, more uh, appropriate uh, way of looking, of looking at it. And uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. So that's, that can be a good example of this ability to get stronger by stress and uh, recover from it. And this quote also describes the concept of anti-fragility. So anti-fragile is a book and an idea created by a philosophist and uh, uh, economist, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He has a good book about it, but basically there are, he uses three models to describe this uh, stress resilience. The first one is uh, what he calls fragile. Fragile things don't uh, like stress. They actually break under pressure. When they ex encounter something uh, stressful, they just uh, you know, start to degrade, like a piece of glass. When you drop the glass, it's going to break into millions of pieces. It's a fragile thing. Robust things are more resilient than fragile, like a metal, piece of metal, a stone, or something. Uh, 
they can resist the stress, they can endure it, but at the same time, it doesn't uh, change. It kind of it stays indifferent, nothing happens to it really, good nor bad. And antifragile things are the opposite of things that are fragile. Antifragility is the ability to gain and get better from the stress, get stronger from the stress and uh, use it to your own benefit. And the best example of antifragility that uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb also uses is the mythological creature Hydra. So Hydra has many heads, it's like this serpent or a dragon, and if you cut off one head of the Hydra, then the Hydra is going to grow two heads instead. So it gets damaged, it loses one head, but it actually recovers and comes back stronger with two heads. So the more, the more often you damage the Hydra, the more heads is going to grow, and it gets stronger from the stress. The biological phenomenon that describes antifragility and stress adaptation is called hormesis. And uh, hormesis is pretty universal in all living organisms, including like plants and uh, vegetation. So hormesis is a very dose-specific uh, response to a stressor, a toxin, something that causes injury. In small amounts, it can be very beneficial. In moderation, it can make you stronger. But if it becomes excessive, it's also harmful. And uh, usually things follow this uh, bell curve, that if, some, something, if you don't get enough of something, let's say, for example, sunlight, then you can also experience negative health outcomes. You have a weaker immune system, you just have, are very like, fragile towards sunlight and UV radiation. If you get the moderate dose, then you're healthy, optimally healthy, you have a good immune system, but if you have, get too much sunlight, then you also experience you know, sunburn, you get skin cancer and those things. So everything has a bell curve, everything has like a hormetic uh, dose. And uh, the kind of what matters is the dosage. So what affects adaptation energy? So I mentioned this, it's the universal currency that our body uses to deal with stress. In the yellow zone, you have these various triggers that are going to tap into our body's adaptation energy that are going to trigger the stress response system. And those things can be good and they can also be bad. Like, for example, work stress, overworking, burnout, that can be a trigger for depleting adaptation energy, but at the same time, exercise will also do it. Exercise is a stressor to the body. And uh, it is going to deplete your adaptation energy to a certain extent. Other things in here include uh, just pressure, whether it be like time pressure on a rush, uh, social pressure, like anxiety, as well as just the environment that you're surrounded by. If you're living in a very polluted environment, uh, a very toxic environment, you get exposed to chemicals, heavy metals, then that is going to deplete some of the adaptation energy and it's going to trigger the body's stress response. In the green zone, you have the things that promote recovery and restoration. Those are everything starting with just proper sleep, recovery, rest, um, getting all of your essential nutrients from diet that you need, especially like magnesium. Magnesium is a very important nutrient for uh, stress management. But the problem is also that most people are very deficient in magnesium and uh, the soil is also pretty depleted of, so, uh, of magnesium and we don't get enough of it from like our vegetables and other foods. So that's why you kind of have to kind of pay attention to magnesium, especially if you are experiencing high amounts of stress. Other things that help with recovery are uh, social support, social support uh, you know, contacting with your family and loved ones, then financial status, like there are research that uh, low socioeconomical status can cause more stress and uh, similar problems. 
Then there's just general health. If you're healthy, then uh, these minor stressors shouldn't have like a huge effect on your system and stress uh, resilience. And just mental well-being, like your own mental narrative and mental self-talk will also determine how are you going to react to the stress and how it's going to affect you. And of course, lastly, these beliefs and values, maybe religion, maybe some other uh, values in terms of how you look at the world, what do you believe in. And uh, lastly, things that kind of uh, reduce the adaptation energy and lead to exhaustion are aging in general. The older you get, the less stress resilient you are. Uh, if you're young, you can get away with things. Uh, past traumas, whether that be uh, some maybe, you know, like there's a research showing that um, war, wartime uh, survivors or like prisoners or something that have experienced these massive traumas in the past, they have much lower uh, stress resilience. You know, PTSD is an example of that. Uh, overnutrition or maybe like, you know, diabetes, insulin resistance, uh, obesity, those will lower your adaptation energy. Many nutrient deficiencies, especially like magnesium, that would um, lead to exhaustion. Comorbidities, you know, the, the ones I mentioned already, cardiovascular disease, others, and uh, social isolation, apathy, you know, negative self-talk, the uh, sleep deprivation and chronic stress, they will also deplete this adaptation energy. And uh, you can see on the graph, uh, there's these dotted lines from the trigger section that can lead to both of these uh, solutions. They can lead to recovery or they can lead to exhaustion. And it's not it, it, you know, both of these stressors can be um, causing either option. You can recover or you can lead to exhaustion. Uh, what matters is only how you uh, respond to the stress and uh, how well are you able to come out of it. And in the rest of my speech, I'm going to be giving you like more of these examples of these various stressors, hormetic stressors, anti-fragile stressors that uh, can increase your stress resiliency and uh, especially kind of hone in on your adaptation energy. The first one I'm going to be starting off with is uh, calorie restriction. So it is quite well researched for even a few decades that um, calorie restriction can extend the lifespan of um, almost every species on the planet, including you know, worms, uh, flies, monkeys, um, mice, and there is research that it applies to humans as well. And for example, in this study that you see on the graph, um, the monkeys that were fully fed the regular diet in the regular amounts, they don't live um, exponentially longer. They're living their average lives is in the green arrow, but the mice who who are fed 15 or 20% fewer calories, they live a little bit longer. But the mice who are fed like 50 to 60% fewer calories live uh, almost you know, 100% longer, like double the amount than uh, the regular mo uh, monkeys. So there, it is quite an interesting phenomenon that uh, if you feed fewer calories to you know, animals, organisms, then they tend to exhibit uh, longer lifespans. So why is it so? Uh, why, why does it happen? Calorie restriction can uh, increase longevity and lifespan by many mechanisms. So on the picture, you can see a few of them. The, mo the most important ones, such as reduced insulin and IGF-1 signaling, which is essentially going to improve your metabolic function, prevents diabetes, prevents uh, me metabolic uh, syndrome, and other nutritionally related uh, problems. Other pathways uh, that the calorie restriction works is uh, suppression of mTOR. 
So mTOR is your body's like a growth pathway that promotes growth. mTOR can make you build muscle, uh, or it's needed to build muscle. mTOR can also, you know, rejuvenate immune cells. But at the same time, if it's in excess, it can also lead to cancers and malignancies. So calorie restriction is going to suppress mTOR, and therefore it's going to lower the potential of developing some um, cancers or tumors. Then there is uh, autophagy and apoptosis, which basically describe the body's way of eliminating dysfunctional cell components, all this junk material that you accumulate, zombie cells, uh, everything, dysfunctional parts of the cell that uh, aren't necessarily needed for survival. And as you clean out those uh, junk material, then you're going to just be healthier and you have less inflammation. And lastly, also, calorie restriction lowers inflammation through these similar pathways um, that I just mentioned, and uh, that is causing less damage to the body. And you know, the less damage and less stress your body experiences, then the less adaptation energy will also be uh, depleted. But um, it is also found that uh, calorie restriction doesn't work if you block the process of autophagy. So in some mice studies, if the mice are genetically modified in a way that uh, they, don't, they, they don't have autophagy, that the autophagy process doesn't get activated, then they're not going to live longer. So that kind of goes to show that it's not necessarily calorie restriction that is causing the increase in lifespan. It's more so these pathways that promote this process and uh, promote the longevity, such as uh, autophagy, which is probably one of the central ones. And it also comes to show that you don't necessarily have to starve to uh, live longer. As a biohacker, you can know, okay, why does it work? What can I do instead to have less, fewer negative side effects? Because calorie restriction can also have quite a few negative side effects if you overdo it, primarily like nutrient deficiencies and uh, becoming frail, losing muscle. Those are actually things that you don't want if you want to be resilient. Unfortunately, there are ways of getting the benefits of calorie restriction without practicing necessary calorie restriction, and uh, the most effective way of doing so is intermittent fasting. And a recent 2019 uh, meta-analysis, or a review of all the studies out there about calorie restriction and intermittent fasting, they have concluded that uh, you know, intermittent fasting doesn't necessarily work because of losing weight and uh, reducing oxidative stress. It works primarily because of turning on these pathways, these longevity genes inside the body that promote resilience, uh, antioxidant defense systems, and uh, primarily like autophagy and these other ones that I mentioned in the previous slide. Intermittent fasting mimics the effects of calorie restriction, and uh, you can so somehow bypass the negative side effects of calorie restriction. And in human studies about intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, it's called in humans, uh, they have found that uh, just changing the eating window that you consume your calories in a day gives some of uh, unique effects compared to eating uh, regularly. So in this study, they compared eating over the course of 12 hours versus eating over the course of like an eight-hour window or so, and they saw um, a better insulin sensitivity, they saw lower inflammation, lower blood pressure, and just uh, better longevity gene activation in general. So if you compare intermittent fasting and calorie restriction, then you can see that they give similar benefits, they give almost identical uh, benefits, such as these longevity genes, re reduced inflammation, uh, weight loss, and better metabolic health. But uh, you know, in, both of them can have like, negative side effects as well. But uh, in most cases, the intermittent fasting tends to have slightly fewer negative side effects. Like you can 
definitely develop nutrient deficiencies with calorie restriction, but with intermittent fasting, you don't necessarily have to reduce your calorie intake, you just reduce the time period in which you consume your calories. And uh, in practice, that entails that you eat only maybe like, uh, instead of eating like breakfast, lunch and dinner, you eat only lunch and dinner or breakfast and lunch. So you don't eat over the span of you know, 15 or 16 hours like the average person does. You eat it maybe within 10 hours, 12 hours, 8 hours, 6 hours, depending on which one you choose. But the idea is to just narrow down some of the eating window per day and um, therefore your body experiences this hormesis. Um, it gets stronger from some of the deprivation, but you don't become chronically deprived uh, of calories and uh, energy intake. So how much autophagy is good? Like everything follows this bell curve, like I said, and that applies to fasting and autophagy as well, like exercise and everything else has a bell curve. If um, you see, let's say, these chronic diseases, such as heart disease, inflammation, diabetes, you have high IGF-1, high mTOR expression, then uh, that would mean that you're getting uh, too little autophagy and uh, too little, let's say, uh, this hormesis. Uh, but if you're getting too much autophagy, too much fasting, too much calorie restriction, then you're going to see muscle loss, you have low thyroid, low energy, your skin is frail, hair loss, uh, bone frailty, and all those things. Uh, those are signs of too much autophagy or too much fasting or too much calorie restriction. And the kind of green zone is uh, where everything is in the optimal dose. That would be your metabolically flexible. You don't have to, let's say, eat all the time to maintain your energy levels. You can go throughout the entire day without snacking all the time because your body starts to burn its own fat and it can just tap between different fuel sources. Uh, other signs of good uh, metabolic flexibility are just you know, good skin, uh, gut health is also working fine, and you have a strong immune system. That would be a sign of uh, optimal amounts of autophagy. And as the medieval doctor Paracelsus said, what makes the poison is the dose. So that describes this bell curve. Everything can be harmful in excess, and everything can be harmful if you're getting not enough of it. And kind of the answer is somewhere in the middle. The next topic follows the previous quote of what, what makes the poison is the dose. It's called xenohormesis. So xenohormesis describes hormesis through various plant compounds and uh, ingredients. So there are many these stress molecules inside different plants, especially like wild herbs, wild plants, wild berries, those stress molecules are also actually the body or the plant's way of dealing with environmental stress, like the cold, starvation, uh, water deprivation. <laughs> the plants also experience this uh, hormesis if they are exposed to these stressors and they actually get stronger from it. They produce all these uh, pigments, polyphenols, that if us or animals consume, then we get a similar beneficial stress response and we get stronger ourselves uh, by eating them. And examples of these xenohormetic compounds um, are quite wide. There's like hundreds of them out there. Uh, but a few examples of uh, these specific pathways that we talked about with fasting would be like autophagy. You can boost autophagy process with uh, the medicinal mushrooms, chaga, reishi, uh, cordyceps, lion's mane, then all the uh, teas, green tea, black tea, various teas, uh, black coffee as well. And there's also these spices, turmeric, uh, ginger, berberine, cayenne pepper. Those are also uh, 
activating or promoting some of the autophagy process. In the middle, we have glutathione. Glutathione is uh, the body's main antioxidant system, and uh, it's produced by the liver, but you can also promote this process with uh, especially like these green leafy uh, vegetables like uh, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower. They stimulate or they lead to the activation of glutathione by causing this small amount of stress inside the body because we can't really, you know, we can't really fully digest these plant toxins and the compounds. We are able to deal with them if we get the right dose and we kind of respond to those uh, toxins by producing our own antioxidants and producing our own defense systems. And lastly, sirtuins. Sirtuins are another of these longevity genes that get activated with calorie restriction and intermittent fasting, but you can also promote it with these darker pigment Berries, uh, bilberries, blueberries, cranberries, uh, but also like grapes, these you know, dark red skins of uh, fruit, and also like red wine has this resveratrol compound that is famous for anti-aging effects. And one of the reasons it has these anti-aging effects is because of promoting sirtuins. Let's move on with the cold. Cold can also have a pretty uh, beneficial effect on the body, such as when your body experiences the cold, then it's going to turn on uh, these cold shock proteins that are supposedly to uh, help you to deal with the cold. And uh, these cold shock proteins will also activate many of these longevity genes, um, such as FOXO proteins, which are also stress resilience uh, molecules that the body produces. And the cold also activates brown adipose tissue or brown fat. And the brown fat is associated with better glucose metabolism. You have more stable blood sugar. You're more insulin sensitive. And you basically have a higher metabolic rate as a result of that as well. The cold, of course, it just increases your alertness and makes you fully awake. It decreases inflammation, which will then have a positive effect on uh, physical pain, uh, soreness, even things like arthritis and uh, also the brain inflammation, which can be useful for, uh, for uh, slowing down neurodegeneration. And as a bonus, uh, the cold also activates or boosts uh, glutathione, the antioxidant. But there are negative side effects of cold. If you do too much cold, uh, if you're not used to it, then that can suppress um, muscle anabolism. So if you're trying to build muscle, then using a lot of cold can be uh, not a good thing. It can also cause a neuropathy, you know, the lack of blood flow to the fingers and uh, toes, as seen in, for example, in diabetes, the too much cold can lead to that. Uh, it could suppress your immune system if you're getting too much cold, or if you combine many stressors with the cold, like you, you come from a marathon, you already have a slightly lower immune system from the exercise, and then you jump into the cold, then you may get sick as a result of that. So it's not necessarily the cold, it's just the accumulation of many stressors and uh, leads to uh, this burnout. And it is true that uh, viruses tend to be more stable in cold environments, um, so that's something to take into account. The sauna, there's quite a lot of studies showing that the sauna is beneficial, or heat in general, is beneficial for uh, cardiovascular health. And in this Finnish study, they saw that uh, taking the sauna more than four times a week lowered uh, heart disease mortality by up to 60%, and overall all-cause mortality was also reduced by 40% compared to doing it only like once a week. So uh, yeah, imagine that if you don't take any sauna at all, then uh, you may have 
you know, at least uh, lack, you, you don't have like the most optimal um, cardiovascular system as a result. And because of you know, the sauna, the heat, it has this similar hormetic effect. It turns on not cold shock proteins, but heat shock proteins. And they have a similar uh, role in helping to deal with the stress of the heat. And heat shock proteins promote autophagy, they promote uh, DNA repair, and also uh, glutathione. Uh, with the heat and with the sweating, you can also eliminate these toxins and heavy metals. Studies show that you can actually excrete toxins with sweat, so that's a beneficial thing. And uh, the heat actually kills uh, viruses, pathogens, because of the heat, high amounts of stress, they can't really tolerate it. Uh, the, the heat also lowers inflammation, which uh, again can help with uh, physical pain, soreness, as well as uh, neurodegeneration, and a boost growth hormone, which is uh, is not necessarily like a growing hormone, but it helps the body to like burn fat and uh, maintain muscle mass. The negative side effects of too much heat can be dehydration. You can lose your minerals like magnesium through your sweat if you excrete them too much. Um, heat exhaustion can be a real thing if you're not used to it. Arrhythmia, if you already have like uh, pre-existing uh, cardiovascular problems or hypertension, then that can be a problem. And of course, like burn injuries um, can also happen if you're exposed to too much heat. Next up, I want to cover a little bit about like psychological stress resilience. So Will Durant was a famous uh, 20th century historian. He has said, a nation is born Stoic and dies Epicurean. So Stoicism is an ancient Greek philosophy that emphasizes personal responsibility, ethics, um, virtues, and trying to live uh, according to nature. Whereas Epicureanism is more of like also an ancient Greek philosophy that focuses mostly on pleasure, trying to live a happy life through pursuing pleasure, trying to avoid bad people, trying to avoid negative situations, trying to just stay in your comfort zone. And uh, whereas Stoicism tries to actually seek discomfort uh, deliberately, as to try to toughen yourself up a little bit. Both of these philosophies have a place. Like, you know, if you're constantly a Stoic, then you may experience just maybe like, like a boring life or very, yeah, you, you may become too cold. Um, but whereas if you're only Epicurean, then you're going to be quite fragile towards the chaos and uncertainty of life. Like the universe, pandemics, uh, you know, war, they don't care about your emotions. They're going to happen anyway. And um, if you embrace some aspects of Stoicism, then you can, you know, actually strengthen yourself uh, against these things in advance. Uh, so I would imagine that, you know, during times of stress, during times of chaos, uncertainty, it is beneficial to have like some stoic uh, mindset. But, you know, during times of peace, when everything is good, you can also embrace Epicureanism. But stoicism also reminds us that there are very th few things in our life that we can control in the world. We can't control the weather, we can't control what happens around us, uh, uh, but we only can control very few things, mostly our own thoughts and actions, how we react to those things, what we do in advance, our own habits, 
our lifestyle, those are the things that we can control. And it would be futile, it would be stupid to try to focus on the things that we can't control, because we can't control them in the first place. And trying to do so will just cause anxiety and uh, distress and the depression. Whereas if we focus only on the things that we can control, which is our thoughts and actions, our lifestyle, our habits, then we can just, you know, stay more resilient. Let's talk about the brain. Stress response, um, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, they're kind of governed by a specific uh, part of the brain called the amygdala. So it's this small uh, center, fear center in the brain. And it is also recognized to be as like the primal part of the brain, the survival brain. So if you see a rattlesnake in the grass, then you jump up into the tree, you run away from danger, that's the amygdala giving you this energy and telling you, okay, it's a stressful situation, now go, run away, get, get, get into safety. And the problem is that once this happens, once the amygdala takes over, then our prefrontal cortex, which is the human brain, the rational brain, the logical brain, that is going to be shut down because you know, rationality and logic isn't a priority if you're running away from danger because you just need to get away with it. Uh, so that's why if you're chronically activating your amygdala throughout the day, then you will have this shutdown of the neocortex. And uh, you're going to make worse decisions, you're going to experience chronic stress, you're going to have high amounts of emotion, you're angry, you're fearful, anxious. And uh, the key is to know how can we kind of control our amygdala or know how to respond to stress better. And Viktor Frankl has said he was a Jewish uh, psychiatrist uh, who survived Auschwitz. And uh, he has a quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So there is always the event, the, the trigger, the stress, and there is our response. What response is going to be depends on the space in between those two events. And we have to know how do we change our response. And things that shorten the response, that shorten our fuse, that make us really angry and make us lose our self-control are you know, poor sleep, chronic stress, anxiety, uh, just being mindless about what goes on inside our body. And things that increase that space, that give us more time to react to the stress more positively are uh, this adaptation energy that we talked about being mindful, practicing meditation maybe, breathing, <laughs> take, a, take a deep breath before you make a decision, just peace of mind as well as stoicism and negative visualization. So negative visualization is a stoic practice where you envision these negative events happening before they happen. You think about, you kind of come to, come to the conclusion that negative events are inevitable, they're going to happen anyway and you make peace with it in advance, like you're not afraid of them, and uh, you actually start to think about, okay, if that happens, how am I gonna respond? Like, if I am going to miss the bus, what am I gonna do? Uh, what am I gonna do when the next pandemic comes? What am I gonna do when I lose my job? You come, come up with solutions uh, before the event actually happens. And every one of us has our own level of stress adaptation of how much stress can we handle and a lot of it is has to do with our you know level of adaptation energy and our stress resilience in general so every kind of the whenever we do encounter distress like exercise fasting calorie restriction the cold the heat um, you know some mental fear whatever it is then we get weaker in so doing 
Uh, but the body, if we get enough recovery, then the body super compensates for that and it gets stronger. So we're on another level. And uh, of course, it can also go down if you experience exhaustion. But generally, if you allow yourself enough recovery, such as sleep, eating enough nutrients, uh, getting social support, just uh, being mindful about these things, uh, then you will eventually get stronger. And as you progress it further, then you should see this linear progression towards increased uh, stress resilience and adaptation. I want to finish off with the quote of Sun Tzu, who said, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. So these chaotic events are inevitable. <laughs> They're going to happen anyway. We just we, we have to kind of make peace with that and uh, prepare in advance. Because yeah, if you don't if you don't engage in any of these you know stress resilience activities, getting uh, more heat tolerant, more you know getting fitter, losing weight, uh, improving your stress resilience, then you're not going to respond to once the real real chaos comes. So it's always better to be prepared in advance. So that's it for me. And uh, you can find my information on, the, on those links or the, those websites. And I want to also mention that uh, me and my cameraman, Anzei, were working on like a documentary about this same topic of stress resilience and adaptation with biohacking. So we've been uh, filming together with the Biohacker Center team and other people uh, for a few months already. And he's also here uh, taking a few clips. So yeah, don't be afraid of it. Or if you want to be not in the film or something, then uh, you can just mention that to him. But we also want to give you like a, smart, a short teaser about what you can expect to see. We're going to probably uh, try to reach an international audience, and uh, it's going to be a pretty good film. So yeah, there's going to be a teaser trailer type of thing. Check it out.